0: Thank you for having me, Joe. I welcome to the podcast. I am Joe Poznanski and uh as you might know last week Michael Shore came back to the podcast for for a week to do our little baseball preview, but now he's gone again back doing uh that uh that television show thing that he does. Um and we'll be back uh in a few weeks, but in the, you know as we you know, we we have a our cavalcade of stars, uh guest hosts, and we have an amazing, amazing guest host this week. Couldn't be more excited to have podcast pop culture correspondent, Linda Holmes. Linda, welcome. Thank you, Joe. Hi. Hi, it's so great. I'm so thrilled to have you on the, the podcast.
1: I'm I'm thrilled to be back on the podcast.
0: Yes, yes. You know, you you have another job besides for podcast uh, special uh, correspondent to pop culture, right? You, like you do something else?
1: Yes, I do. Uh, I work at NPR, where I'm uh, also a pop culture correspondent, and I host the podcast Pop Culture Happy Hour.
0: So great. It's so great. Well, I cannot tell you how happy I am to have you here. We have lots to go over, lots to discuss. We have a draft coming up. Uh, but first and foremost, as, as everybody knows, uh, you have a book coming out in six weeks, eight weeks, seven weeks, somewhere in that range. At the yep. end of June, June 25th, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. It's called Evie Drake Starts Over. It's Evie, right? Is it Evie? Do you pronounce it Evie or Evie?
1: It's Evie. It's Evie like like Chevy. Aww. She says in the book, like Chevy.
0: I guess she does say that in the book. I still like Evie better. It's still a better name. Yeah. But- <laughs> Sorry, it's a hey, far, far be it for me to criticize that's great Evie Drake starts over uh which is fantastic uh wonderful wonderful book i oh, did you the- read it i did I, uh-huh. i've been reading it oh, i love it I love it i've been reading it uh on and off for a while sure. But sure. you were on gave me the perfect excuse to uh, finish the book so i finished it last night uh loved it um all right so I'm gonna ask you all of the questions that you're gonna get asked when the book actually comes out by the way it is available for pre-order uh, uh, everywhere, independent uh, yeah. bookstores, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, the whole bit. Uh, so buy several copies as we always uh, recommend. Um, but I'm going to ask you some of the questions that, that people will ask you as you, as you go on the tour, because this is your first book. It is. Uh, it is. And, and how long did it take you? Like, And I don't mean how long did it take you to write? Cause that's the obvious. How long did it take you to get over the whole mental thing that it takes to actually like, I'm gonna write a book, then actually do the book, and then actually finish the book. Cause though that's right. like there's like five mental blocks. So there.
1: probably 35 years, <laughs> I
0: that's, would say. That's about what it usually is, I think.
1: Cause I always, always wanted to write a novel and I had absolutely no confidence that I knew how to do it or would be able to finish it. And so um I, you know, ever since I was a young teenager, I guess I would say. Sure. And yep. so I always had little bits of different things going. I would have little projects here and little projects there, and uh, you know, five pages of this and three pages of that. And then, um, and then I I eventually got my teeth into this story. And I think um, I, I started it in, in 2012, actually, okay. um, at the in November of 2012. And then my apartment flooded, and I had to put it down. Uh, you know, very briefly, which turned into putting it down for of a really course. long time. And uh, I picked it up and put it down for about uh, four years after that. And then I don't know if you know this, but the fall of 2016 was a, a tense time mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. a lot of us. Something And happened, I, I found that my was. well, a lot, a lot, a lot, was, a lot going was going on. on. Yeah, and I found I found myself in the, in need of uh, some enjoyable things that were distracting and that I had some control over. Uh, and I went back to writing it, and then it was done by by end of March of 2017. So,
0: and, and maybe maybe I'm misrepresenting this. I don't want to misrepresent this because it, all, it, this is something all of us, you know, as writers, go through is is you know, lots of different moments of doubt, and, and then this and that, and then and then you start it, and then maybe you stop, and if you, you figure this out. I think what you're saying is that this book is is this wonderful book is now in people's hands because. Donald Trump was elected president. Is that fair? Is that fair to say?
1: I mean, I, I think it's fair to say that uh, that I was nudged okay. forward by a, a tense a tense time in our nation's okay. history. I'll I thought you it.
0: were referring to the Cubs winning the World Series. I thought that was what was uh, the tense thing you were talking about in two thousand. That's yeah. true. That's All true. Time, maybe, maybe it, it was. Very well been. Yeah. But that's really cool. Now, when when you started writing this book in 2016 or, or picked it up again, I guess, uh, at that time, obviously, that's what this book is. Has has it always been Evie and 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 this this story? And, and there's some, you know, there's quite a bit of baseball in this story. There's quite a bit of sports and pop culture in this story. Was was that always sort of the vision you had in mind? Or did this crystallize a little bit later on?
1: Yeah, I had always had kind of two – this originated with two different stories that I kind of had in my head. One was her story, this idea of a young widow who was unhappily married. And um, has a
0: very, very then, sad uh, – yeah, a very yeah. sad ending there, yeah. yeah.
1: And then uh, the other is, you know, a story of uh, an athlete, um, a struggling athlete. And I think probably it's very possible that my affection for like – semi-aging athletes comes out of Bull Durham, very Mm -hmm. possibly. Um, But then at some point I became, I think it was, I saw a tape of Mackie Sasser when he was um, catching for the Mets. And watching him be unable to toss back to the pitcher is one of the most compellingly awful things I've ever seen in my life. Um, And I became fascinated with the yips and reading a lot about it. And Um, it just seemed like such a, it's such a compelling narrative thing to me. And I think I relate to it so much as a writer, because you always have that fear, like what happens if I wake up one day and I can't write anymore? Um, so I always found that really compelling. So I kind of had her story and his story working separately. And then eventually I thought like, oh, you know, there's some thematic similarity in what these people are dealing with. So let's just throw them into a house and see well, what it's happens. Really
0: interesting uh, for me because I literally just wrote uh, a column that was was definitely uh, um, impacted by reading this book yesterday and by sort of the story of of Yips today, which is uh, Baltimore's uh, Chris Davis being hitless uh, the entire year and had not having a hit now in forty nine consecutive at bats, I believe it is, which is the major league record. Um, and, and I, I found myself very struck. I I've, I've been following that for a while, but I found myself very struck, especially after finishing the book, there is something about like, because, you know, here was this, this player that was once, you know, nearly the MVP and and hit 50 home runs in a season. And now he can't, he can't, he's doing no better than I would do if I was at the plate mm-hmm. That's there's like something very tenuous about life, you know, like 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 maybe tomorrow we're just gonna forget how to do everything that we thought we used to be able to do. There is something very, very powerful about that.
1: It's like you read the book. (laughs) I promise
0: I did. I don't I this
1: is this is exactly what I this is exactly what I what I thought. And I think, you know, there's also a real you know, without giving away too much of the story, I think there's also a real interesting thing to explore in fiction about what it means to handle a a difficult happening in your life and what it means to have a satisfying ending to a story. And I think, um, so for me, a a lot of the book was about, you know, what does it mean for somebody to deal with this situation? Cause a lot of these guys, not all, but a lot of these guys, it, it never ends. They never come back. Um, and, and especially, I mean, it makes some sense. It's a little bit self-selecting because the ones that are the most famous are the ones that don't come back. But um, in a lot of cases, there's no particular, you know, there's not necessarily a good um, explanation for it. There's not necessarily a good cure for it. They're subjected to a lot of kind of armchair analysis of you're just in your head. You just got to yes. relax. You just got to whatever. And it's so much more complicated than that. Mackie Sasser's doctor, there's a... Um, There's a 30 for 30 short about Mackie Sasser and his doctor talks, calls it it, a potentially career ending injury when this happens to somebody. Um, So it's a lot more complicated than just, well, you know, you're stressed, you're in your head. Some people think it has some connection to trauma or something else. Mackie Sasser always thought that it had to do with a particularly hard slide that had injured his um, ankles and he had to, uh, he had to, to crouch differently. Um, and he thought that might have thrown him off originally, but a lot of them, uh, they just don't know, and that's sort of where you—that's where you are with a lot of these guys. And it's
0: fascinating. I mean, it's and it's—it's it's very, very sad. I mean, to watch some of these people who were, really, you know, like like Mackie Sasser and others who have had their careers ended uh, with this, but it's also very, very sad because it seems so fixable, right? It seems so. Right. Yesterday I could do it, and today I can't. I remember Tom Watson. Uh, Tom Watson, you know, after he him being, uh, you know, the best player in the world for seven or eight years in a row, suddenly couldn't putt. He couldn't. He couldn't make. You know, I mean, the yes. ultimate version of the yips. You know, the actual yips. Right. Very famous in golf. Right. Yes. Very famous. And in golf. he would tell me that he would get hundreds and hundreds of letters and 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 packages in the mail very nice people who, who had their own prescription why don't you put with one eye open both eyes closed uh uh that people would send him different uh you, you know he, he had like a whole f- complete office filled of putters different kinds of putters and people would send him mm-hmm. slings to wear around his arm and th- and they just didn't it, you know they they were trying to help but they were making it so much worse for him you know right
1: and- right and i think i think most of the guys who have talked about this experience steve blass wrote a book yeah. about it um rick Anke- rick ankiel obviously has a book about it um and i think a lot of the guys who have talked about it have said that exact thing that one of the most frustrating things about it is that because it seems fixable you have that constant stream of people who have a theory about a thing that you haven't tried, which probably you have yes. tried because <laughs> yeah. you've probably tried everything. Um, and so, yeah, I think that is definitely one of the, one of the, the, the painful parts. Well, and it. I think
0: that, that obviously plays very much in the book, plays very much in the character um, and, and, and don't want yes. to give any more away, but that is very, very apparent throughout the book. Um, you obviously did quite a bit of sports research. I mean, you're a sports fan anyway, but you obviously did quite mm-hmm. a bit of research to figure out what it, I mean, you, it sounds like, I mean, maybe you would have read Steve Blass's book anyway, and Mackie Sasser video and all that stuff. But did you do a lot of this specifically for the book?
1: Yeah, definitely. I did. I did additional reading and stuff for the book, not just stuff about the yips, but also like, um, Jeff Passan's book, The Arm and uh, and uh, the Feinstein book, The um, Living on the Black, which is uh, a really, I think, good book about pitching or interesting book about about pitching. Um, And uh, so I I read a lot of stuff and um, and then I just did a lot of like kicking around reading different weird stuff about the yips, like my favorite thing. And this is one of the things I really tried to retain in the book. Cause I think it's so awful. It's so awful. Yeah. The story of, so if you're Chuck Knobloch and you've oh. been a, a fantastic baseball right. player for a, long time, for a long time, you play second base, you suddenly lose the ability to throw to yes. first, like simple throws to first ones you completed undoubtedly by high yes. school. And So what's the worst thing that could happen to you? Well, the worst thing that happens is you throw into the stands. Mm, No. The worst thing that happens is you throw into the stands and hit somebody. Mm, No. The worst thing, what if it was somebody famous? That's worse than that. Nope. What if it was somebody famous in sports media? And now you think you've arrived at the worst possible thing you could do is throw into the stands and hit somebody in sports media But it's not. The worst thing would be to hit the sports media person's mother, which is what he did. He hit Keith Olbermann's mother out of all the people in the stands. It's these weird facts that make guys with the yips seem kind of cursed in this way that does seem otherworldly to me. It's so... It's so awful and completely true. So I read a lot about stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, it's
0: crazy. It's crazy. And and very, very interesting and very much comes across in the book. Was it was it, you know, you've done a lot of writing and in, in of all kinds. I mean, obviously it's some journalism, but you've done other kinds of writing as well. Fiction mm-hmm. different? Completely did you did you put yourself in a different place and a different mindset when you were writing it?
1: Yeah, it's it's a really different experience. It's a um, I think the fiction writing experience requires a different kind of concentration. It also has different it has different frustrations because you get to a certain point where the idea for the book, which is kind of the premise of the book and who the characters are, has all you've written all that part and essentially that's the first act and so you're now th- about a third of the way maybe into the book and what i have discovered is it's really common for people to have a lot of trouble moving into that next part of the book where you have to start moving the pieces mm-hmm. around um and even if you know what you want the characters to be dealing with and working through, you actually have to come up with a sequence of events to write about. <laughs> and and sometimes that's really challenging. So yeah, it definitely had different, it had different challenges for sure. I have found
0: that everywhere every kind of writing that I do requires some kind of just even sometimes it's subtle and sometimes it's very different mindset, like a different concentration. Right. Yes. I, and which is I didn't believe I didn't I didn't think that at all. When I wrote my first book, I thought, look, that's all I do is write. Right. I mean, you know, and especially my first book was about Buck O'Neill. I'd written about Buck O'Neill hundreds of times before. And and it's like, okay, well, this is just this is just a continuation of what I already do. And it wasn't at all. I just, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't get over that. I couldn't. And then you start writing about things that are very, very different and things that are completely out of my, out of my comfort zone and, and, and so on and so forth. And like, wow, this is, you know, and I, I don't know why it would be surprising, but it really is surprising to me how different you as the writer have to be depending on what it is that you're doing.
1: Right. And I think, you know, I, I didn't really study, fiction a lot in school. I don't have an MFA. I haven't spent nearly as much time practicing the writing of fiction as a lot of other people have. And that's one of the reasons why I was very cautious about taking it on. And what I learned was, you know, I have pretty good confidence in my ability to put sentences together, but it is absolutely true that there were major things about structure and pacing and things like that, that I had to learn from being edited on this book. And I'm sure that I will continue to be, um, to learn those things. But I think, you know, those were the things where I was especially sensitive to you know, if somebody is concerned that this is structurally not working um, or that this pacing isn't working, I have to be really especially attentive to that because it's not something I have studied and and worked on very yeah. much.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, at some point, I think all of us are, you know, driven by what it is, especially when you're doing something new like writing fiction, we're driven by what we've read and, and you know, the, the right. ones that are good at it make it look incredibly easy, you know, and make it look like, okay, well, that's all you do is put those words together and that's it. And, and there's just so much going on. I mean, you know, there's, there's a ton. One of the things that I really was paying attention to yesterday, because I was thinking about, okay, well, so much different. Is it writing fiction from nonfiction? And I've done, you know, some fiction, but, but, but certainly nothing at this length so much more dialogue that's that's you know i mean and and the dialogue in this book is really i think it's great i mean i think it's really good it's sound it's it's there there's at no point does it stop you i think there are many books that i've read fiction where i've read and i thought okay well that's i I, i've lost my train of thought here because the the words aren't exactly right i don't see that person saying that or whatever the case you obviously worked very hard on that but that is that's a whole art form all in itself
1: And I think that that is where it's most helpful to me um, that I've spent so much time loving and watching um, movies and television. I think, you know, novels have a lot of structural um, challenges that are completely unique to novels. But um, but when you've watched a lot of movies and a lot of TV that you have liked and not liked, I think it does sharpen a little bit your. Um, your ear for what dialogue would sound like and what the dialogue that you like sounds like. And there are a couple of things in there where when I read them, like I love Aaron Sorkin dialogue. Mm-hmm. and there are a couple of brief exchanges in that book that I look at and I'm like, well, Holmes right there, you are just <laughs> you are just ripping off Sorkin in these five or six lines because it's just you, you you do kind of, learn rhythms of, of how people write dialogue.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and, and I, I like Sorkin dialogue too, but you know that Sorkin ripped off somebody else, what he was, you know what I mean? It's like, there's, there is some, and, and I, by ripped off, I mean, everybody, is so influenced by other exactly, people exactly. and eventually becomes their own voice. But I mean, that's, that's how it begins. It, it's how it, it's how Exactly. It I think that's right. The book is Every Drake Starts Over. Every Drake, every Drake. What am I saying? Every Drake Starts Over. It's please go and buy it. You, you don't even have to listen to the rest of the podcast if, if you're willing to just go and buy it. <laughs> but I, I hope you stay. You could buy it afterward. But I'm just saying we'll talk about it again in a minute. Uh, but first we're going to talk uh, baseball because uh, I have to admit, I have to admit, I was a, a little shocked, I, a little taken aback, as it were, because, yes. of course, you were on this very podcast with Michael and I, and we yes. uh, helped you choose a baseball team. You you were interested in, yes. in a baseball team. We had a little draft throughout our different uh, possibilities out there. Um, and as as we understood it, you were coming uh To grips with the idea that you were going to be an Astros fan. And this was, yes. And this was the perfect time to be an Astros fan. The team got very good right away. It was, it all worked out. Yes. I'm on Twitter one day, as I shouldn't be. And one, suddenly I look and there's my dear friend Linda Holmes going crazy for the Philadelphia Phillies. So, (sighs) yeah. What the heck happened?
1: Okay. So the problem was, you and Michael did too good of a job (laughs) in what I asked you to originally do, because it's absolutely the case that you gave me the best possible team to try to root for, which was the Astros, but I could barely, I could barely feel it before they won the world Mm. series. Mm -hmm. So it's like the saying is not, you might know, the saying is not buy high and sell low. (laughs) And I felt like I would. I had barely gotten to know this team and they had already peaked. <laughs> and so I felt like, well, now I'm just rooting for a team that all they're going to be trying to do next year is not disappoint people. <laughs> and all they're going to be trying to do next year is live up to something that's probably impossible. So it it's all downhill from yeah. here, I felt yeah. like. Okay. So I just had trouble revving myself back up again. Sure. And... Then I realized that I still do have a kind of, um and I think this was, this was reinvigorated a little bit when the Phillies obtained Bryce Harper. And you can, of course, call me whatever name you want for being like, well, now they got someone really good, so I'm going to go root for them. I am that person. But it made me think like, you know, the only thing that still feels instinctive to me about a rooting interest in baseball is rooting for the Phillies because that's who I rooted for when I was sure. a kid, and I think that um, and I think that it just felt the most normal to me. And then it turned out that the team right now is a bunch of goofballs, which I kind of <laughs> like. Um, I love goofballs. Um, that's my that's my favorite sure. thing. So when I saw that they were kind of they were just a bunch of weirdos. Yep. Um, I thought, well, this is you know, this is where I think I'm going to plunk down my fandom for a bit.
0: And here's 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 sort of my question because this is something I've I've spent a lot of time uh, thinking about over over the years, but but particularly in in recent uh, months. So, did you ever feel any real sort of connection? with the Astros? Like, did you ever feel like, cause, because there was, I, I believe the tweet that, that came from you for the Phillies was sort of a big long. Yeah. I think when they, yeah, yes. right it was just, it was, it was, yes. it was clearly yes. just a, an emotional, yeah. yeah, this is awesome because it was opening day, I guess, and they had just, uh, right. home or whatever. And, right. uh-huh. and I don't think you ever did that for the, for the Astros. So
1: no, I, I didn't have time. I didn't have t- – it takes time to build that up. It takes time to to kind of uh, get that running in your blood, I think. So
0: – but is the point – but the point being, did it ever leave really from the Phillies then? I mean, with the Phillies thing always there? Was it just kind of dormant and, and – Good question. That's, that's really what I'm thinking. That's where I'm going with this.
1: Probably. Probably, Yeah. 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 It was probably always like a – As you say, like a dormant, uh, like something dormant in my soul, uh, (laughs) destined to return and roar back to life as soon as they got Bryce Harper. Well,
0: I just don't know. I I just did an interview with somebody, um, and he was explaining to me that when he went to Los Angeles, uh, he's a Mets, Yankee, Mets, uh, Jets, uh, Knicks fan, and he went to Los Angeles and was in Los Angeles for 25 years or something like that, and he tried desperately to become a Dodgers fan and a Lakers fan because he, uh, you know, he lived there and it was convenient and this wasn't necessarily at a time where you could even really root for a team across the country with any real, you know, success. And so he, he said he tried and he tried and he tried and he completely failed. And at some point instead of, instead of like becoming a fan, he just gave up on sports. He just didn't, (laughs) <laughs> just like there's, there's no point, I'm I've, I've never gonna like these guys, I yeah. don't. so he just kind of stopped yeah. caring and then he moved back to New York six years ago. And yeah. the whole Mets thing, Knicks thing, it came back like it had never left, and now he's
1: yeah. And that, that's hard when that's hard when it's the Knicks, man. Yeah,
0: I know. Well, that's that's what he was complaining about. He was complaining why couldn't I, the, not these teams yeah. are not only. Uh, did I move away? It was like an excuse to get away from these teams. Right. And instead yeah. he couldn't, and he's buried with them forever. So is there something like that? Is that, is, is, can you really choose your team? I don't know the answer to that.
1: Well, the interesting thing is I think you can, I think you can if you have some kind of community support, like I, I lived in Minnesota for uh, 10 years and I did feel a, a great affinity for the twins. Um Because I spent a lot of time watching, I don't know, baseball on television and all that stuff. And I I did feel a a true affinity for the twins, but I think it takes me a little time. And the exact thing that I don't want, as I said, is to come in when they just won. That's just the worst (laughs) moment. So you want to come in when they're like still when it's like still coming up. That's what but you do you want,
0: want them to be terrible? Like, you know, do you want them to be, you know, just absolutely miserable? No, you don't want that either.
1: Not miserable. No, not terrible. You just want them to be striving. You
0: want, I like that. You just want to be striving and you're in the community and you see all the yeah. other people getting excited about them and, and all of that i definitely developed a, a an affinity for the royals when i moved to kansas city and was there for all those years of course that was writing about them all the time but still you know you do develop like an affinity for for those teams because you see what they mean in the community and you can you can see how they connect and and if they they weren't they were no good and you you know you feel for the people who who are sticking with them throughout all of the all right. of the pain and all that so i i guess i can see that i just I just don't know if like, because it seems like there are people out there, we talk about them all the time, the people out there who suddenly, you know, the, the Astros get good and they're wearing an Astros hat and you know, they're, you know, right, yes. but I, I don't even think it's like people like say, oh, they're bandwagon fans. They're not, I mean, are they getting any enjoyment out of that? If they are good for them, but I mean, are they really right. getting any enjoyment out of like just picking a good team and like putting on their hat? I don't, I don't know.
1: I think that in order to have a true affinity for a team that isn't in your community, you have to really put some, you have to put some effort into paying attention to them for a while when they're not good. I I think that that's the way to do it. So I think that, um, you know, it's very difficult if you pick a team that clearly you're picking them because of how good they are. It's like people who became Cowboys fans at a certain um, moment in the history of the NFL. Like, well, yeah, it's fun to be a team of a, a fan of a team that wins all the time. Like that's like, yes, there's a, there is a fun in that, but, um, but to build that real relationship with the team, you have to, you have to have been really angry at them at least once, I that's think right. really, really disappointed in them when there are some stakes, not just one out of 162 baseball games or whatever, but you have to be. You have to have been really frustrated and angry at your team in an important situation at least once. That's what cements your body. Yeah,
0: I think that's right. They break your heart one time at least uh, right. for sure and then you get right. really angry. It's funny because it, it would have been perfect. It
1: would have been perfect if the Astros had almost won the World <laughs> Series. Then I would have been able to adopt them. But because they won the World Series, it was like all right, guys. Well, there's nowhere to go from here but
0: down. Well, the argument I would make, and maybe I'm wrong. My argument I would make is that it wouldn't have mattered. I, I think that Philly's thing was always burning. Uh, Very and, possible, and you know. But uh, the other the other side of this thing is, I don't know that it's that easy. No matter how you happen to come upon it, I don't know that it's that easy to ever really break bonds with with what you think as a kid. I think of right, of podcast right. uh, uh, veteran Mike Dicenzo. Uh Mike is a Seattle Mariners fan. I don't think he'd been to Seattle until he was like, you know, in his late thirties or something. I mean, it's like he, uh-huh. he had never, he, he liked them because Ken Griffey was there and he was a kid and that seemed cool. But then he, he became obsessed with them and now he's an obsessive Mariners fan. The only truly obsessive Mariners fan I know, certainly the only, <laughs> only one outside of Seattle and, yeah. uh, and it's great and, and it's clear. And he would, you know, he, he walks around with Mariner's gear and it's weird and, and funny, but it comes from a real place. I don't know that, I don't know that once you reach a certain age, you can do that anymore. Maybe you can, maybe if you invest enough, you can, but it I just seems like it'd be hard.
1: No, I think you're right. And I think that, I mean, I think that the, the reverse of that is, um, my dad grew up, you know, he lived in, uh, near Boston sure. when he was growing up hasn't lived in Boston for a zillion years, but has always been at some level a Red Sox fan more than anything. Was a big was a big Phillies fan, took me a lot of Phillies games. But I remember on Buckner night, I didn't I didn't want to go home. I was I was babysitting and I didn't want to go home because I was like, mm-mm, that's gonna be a very bad scene. <laughs> Because I knew that he would really be hurting. Because it's different. It's it's a different thing. Your childhood team. It's a different thing. Yeah,
0: I I totally agree. I totally agree. All right. Well, do you have any? Do you have any baseball thoughts from 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 early in the season? Do you have any any you know any feel other than other than your obviously now dominant Phillies? Uh, yeah. Is there anything anything you've picked up early on in the season? Not
1: really. I mean, I I was so. I mean, at first it seemed like the Phillies were going to be undefeated this season, <laughs> which I thought. Sounded really good good
0: to you, probably. Yeah,
1: but then they just ran into a little bit of trouble. You know, they're not quite they're not quite going to be undefeated, but I'm still hoping that they're going to lose like fewer than (laughs) ten games over the course of the season. Would be my hope. Sure, that's real. So I'm just so I'm going to be pulling for them, and I and I do think you know the the hitters on that team are just a lot of fun to watch. They really
0: are. It's every one of them is just, and you're right, they are just kind of a bunch of goofballs from all different, you know, I mean, how could you not like Reese Hoskins? Reese Hoskins? I mean, that's like, yes, how could you exactly. not like that guy? I mean, just...
1: Hoskins and, and you know, because when I was growing up, it was, it was, um, and especially when I was like college age, it was like the era of the Phillies when it was all like tobacco yeah. juice down their shirts and beards <laughs> and stuff and just really like grungy and gross and and now they seem to be a little, you know, they're a little more like uh, they're a little more like slick fun guys, and and I'm into
0: that too. That's good. That's very good. All right. So I have to ask you this question. We're going to go to our draft here in a minute, but I, I have to ask you this question mm-hmm. on in, in your world. So I've been going <clears throat> round and round on this. I don't think I think there's an obvious answer, but it's sort of along the lines of what we're talking about with baseball. So uh, I don't know if we've ever talked about it. I have talked about it on this podcast. I have never seen. 1 minute of game of thrones i've never seen my wife watches it my wife watches the show yeah. and 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 i've never seen even one minute of it and i've never really regret that's her show and 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 that's fine and and she doesn't think i would like it anyway it's not my kind of thing in general however now that that we're getting into what i uh, take to be the final season of it and mm-hmm, and it's mm-hmm. everywhere i feel like left out I feel like mm-hmm. I feel like everywhere I turn, there is this thing that I like. Like I wasn't invited to because I don't understand it and whatever. Right. And so, so my question to you is: uh, Is there anything to be done, or is this? It, there's, it's too late. It's just, it's just too late.
1: I think it's too yeah. late, but I also think. Let me let you in on a little secret okay. about me: a person who writes about television. Yes. Uh, I also don't watch game of Thrones. um i watched I watched um most of the first season, okay. and I got to a point where I was just it just was a lot of exposed innards and nope. um violence against women and things like that compared to how much enjoyment I got from the other aspects of it. It's not particular. I'm not particularly a fantasy um, kind of person. Right. So the, so the trade off was a lot of stuff I found really unpleasant and I wasn't well positioned to enjoy the things that they were really good at. So I've only seen, you know, I've seen, no you know, maybe 10 or 11 episodes okay. total. Um, it just wasn't my bag. Um, and I think at some point you have to, um, you have to realize that some things are not your bag, and it's okay. Yeah,
0: I think that's right. I, I've I've always been. There's lots and lots of things that I've never seen, right? That and and even the shows that I eventually uh, caught up on, or the movies I eventually caught up on, I didn't I didn't watch them while they were going on. I didn't watch The Wire while that was sort of the right. thing. I didn't watch Mad Men when that was sort of the thing. I've seen them since, mm-hmm. um, and they're great, and and I've gotten to enjoy them. But I've never felt any show or even movie, even even the the Marvel whole universe, which I have seen all of those, but even that Marvel universe, I don't feel is quite as in the air as Game of Thrones. It it just feels like it's absolutely everywhere. And maybe that's just sort of in our sphere, it's everywhere, maybe. Maybe it's just very, very big with with journalists and Twitter. And, and I, I mean, maybe, maybe if I was in a different place, it would be, it would be nothing, but I just feel like it's everywhere. Am I wrong?
1: No, I don't think you're wrong. I mean, you're wrong in this only in the sense that numerically, most people don't watch Game right. of Thrones. That's, right. that's true of every show. Right. But, um, but it is very prevalent. And I think you're right. The circles that, that you are operating in and that I'm operating right. in Um the thing that has been the most like this for me all along has been Harry Potter because um, I was never a Harry Potter person. And by the time oh. I got to the point where I felt like maybe I should be a Harry Potter person, <laughs> I felt like the it was like sitting down to a pizza that's 106 feet wide <laughs> and you're like, I can't eat the whole pizza. It's like maybe if I had started with a small slice eight years ago, then I could be making progress. But by the time I, I became interested in it, it just seemed completely unwieldy. Um, and I've had that same feeling of like, there's a lot of references that I, there are references that I don't get. And uh, I just let other people, when it comes up in the context of work, I just let other people take over. That's,
0: that's good. Because that's exactly how I feel about about uh, Game of Thrones. Because there was a part of me thought, well, maybe I could just read the books and 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 uh you know and and get through those and that way at least I'll know what's going on and then maybe if, if I want to watch a little bit of the final season I can or whatever i'm not doing that there's no it, this is your this is
1: this is your 106 foot pizza this is a 106 buddy.
0: foot pizza there's no possibility that I could ever catch up and and I don't I don't really want to so that's the other element of this thing like I was at least Fascinated by some of the other sort of pop culture things that mm-hmm. I've missed. I'm not, mm-hmm. not super fascinated by this. I just feel left out. I just feel completely left out.
1: Yeah. You, you got to just, I, I, I definitely advocate just letting that go because <laughs> it's going to happen with some things anyway. So you got to just, you got to just, just take a deep breath and just let it, let it flow through you. Let the, let the, uh, let the ignorance flow through you like I do. <laughs>
0: It's funny, I was tweeting uh, texting yesterday with uh, with brandon mccarthy and and uh, I made a Star Wars reference in some in some form uh, I don't even remember what it was specific to and uh, and he has never seen Star Wars. He's never seen the Star Wars movies, which uh, kind of blows my mind, but it's really much more explainable than not seeing G- Game of Thrones, right? I mean it's like it's, those are old movies so
1: well, for him. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's a, he's a baby.
0: He's a baby so he doesn't, you know, there, there was no way for people, you know, like us to like have missed it. Like it was too, right. we, we couldn't, but, uh,
1: we, we didn't have that many movies.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. We go to the theater. There's like three movies. I, I tell, I tell my kids this all the time when we go to whatever our, our, uh, our, uh, you know, theater 20, you know, 21 screens or whatever. And, and, uh, and sometimes, like they'll show the same movie, obviously on multiple screens. So even though there's 21 screens, there's only like 14 or 15 movies or something. And yes. I brought my youngest daughter at one point said something like, "Oh, there's not that many movies. Like 15 movies was literally all the movies we had in a year in like in our in our theater that was down the street. It was a little two theater, two movie theater." that that was it. And they would change it every six weeks or something. So,
1: well, and people, things used to stay in theaters for a year. I mean, that's right. Months and months and months in a way that they very, very rarely do now. It's
0: true. Like Star Wars was in the entire 1980. Well, all the eighties. I mean, it was just basically there all the time. So Mm -hmm, crazy. mm -hmm. All right. It is time for our draft. And, uh, and, and it's a good one. It's a good, we've actually been talking about doing this draft for, for some time now. We are drafting uh, crushes from 1980s movies. Is that right? Is that is that how yes. you remembered it? Uh-huh. Crushes from yes. 1980s movies.
1: crushworthy
0: crushworthy characters Crush- crushables, from, uh, right? Crushables, crushables yes. from 1980s movies. Uh, and uh, and you have the first pick. Well,
1: this is I mean, this is so hard, right? Because yes. the, the 1980s were when I was I was passing through young womanhood, this was when my my crushes were really oh, uh, yes. taking flight, yeah. shall we say. <laughs> and uh, it was funny because when I started to look back at the movies from like 1980, 1981, I was like, eh, there's not that much here. And then you hit the point where like I was like 13 and 14. Right. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, yes, OK, <laughs> here here it all is. Um, this was a very hard pick for me because as I sit here, there are people who know me who would probably expect at least three or four different things to be my number one pick. Okay. And I don't think any of them is necessarily <laughs> going to be the thing that I'm going to pick as my number one. I could have made this entire list just Harrison Ford roles <laughs> of the 1980s. And it would have been a great, great list. I'm not just talking about your franchises. I'm not just talking about your Indiana Jones, your Han Solo. I'm talking about Witness. Sure. Very crushable role. Very crushable. And then there's the one that I'm actually going to pick, which is Harrison Ford in the movie Working Girl. (laughs) In which he stars with Melanie Griffith. He does. And Sigourney Sigourney Weaver. Yes. Uh, Melanie Griffith plays a secretary in a large office. This was during the time when we kind of thought that maybe – Uh, large glass and steel office buildings were going to be the answer to everyone being happy person. And uh, she's a secretary and wants to move up in the business world and winds up impersonating her boss uh, played by Sigourney Weaver, um, who gets a very bad rap in this movie in some ways, by the way, she's also fabulous. So her love interest, Melanie Griffith's love interest, who is also Sigourney Weaver's love interest as it happens is, is this guy named Jack who is um, played by Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford in this movie is such is so is so funny, but also so like normal. It's a very it's not a uh, it's not a, a high concept part, particularly. He's just very funny. He's very straightforward. He looks great. This is peak Harrison Ford to me. Um, there is a moment where he changes his shirt in an office. Um in front of a lot of people. And it's a great, great moment. Uh, there's a, a whole conversation he has with a little bit of mustard on his lip. Um, it's deeply, deeply crushable. So I'm going to say Harrison Ford as Jack Trainer in
0: Working Girl. Wow. Uh, you you are, you are correct in, in saying that that would not have been where I would have gone. That's not, that's know. not what I would have predicted. Uh, I actually thought you were going to choose a, a different, Harrison Ford uh, movie that is actually my wife's favorite Harrison Ford movie, but I'll get to that uh, a little later on. Um, okay. I didn't like working girl. I didn't, I did I, I don't know. I, I went back and, and watched it. Cause didn't it get like recently, not recently, but like in the last few years, didn't somebody write some sort of scathing anti working girl, might have. I think I read something so I'm like, ah, i had to go back. I don't remember it being that bad. And then I went back and it 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 was it was uh...
1: well, it's in, it's incredibly 80s. Like if there's a if there's a more 80s movie than Wall Street, <laughs> um, it's Working Girl. It's very much part of that like everybody just wants to be a part of the rat race, isn't it great when we all have a tiny office and there's a million people just like us and yeah.
0: Yeah. No, I, I think that's right. I, that's it's
1: very right. 80s. The fashion's very 80s. Everything's very, it is 80s.
0: very, very 80s. All right. Well, it's it's a it's a fine choice. I mean, you, how can you go against Harrison Ford? That's a fine choice. With my first pick uh, and I have I have so many uh, on my list and, and uh, I I didn't I didn't know exactly how to go with this because for me, I'm a little bit older than you. And for me, the 80s, I was i was 13 in 1980. So mm-hmm. the early 80s were sort of my teen, uh, early, early teen uh, years. And then the mid 80s, of course, I'm a, in high school and, and getting into college. And then the late 80s, I'm just out of college. So so the, the 80s sort of tells my entire life story, what my crutches were. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes. Uh-huh, so
0: yes. I'm going to start off with an early uh, 80s choice. I'm going to choose um uh, Rusty Rodriguez uh from Footloose who is the Jessica Sarah uh, Sarah Jessica oh, Parker oh
1: sure sure good Paul good Paul A couple
0: of things about this this role first of all uh I honestly believed uh, at the time having seen Footloose you know as as many times as I did that I was the only person who was even aware of Sarah Jessica Parker because obviously she is the friend of the of the mm-hmm. main of the main character. So she is a she's a relatively minor character. And yet for me she was the star of the movie and so much better than the main character. I mean just just the main character was so blech, angsty and just yeah just awful. And she just seemed so supportive and 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 awesome. Uh she's fun. She's fun. Yeah she's She's fun. so fun. And then the the second thing is <laughs> I had no earthly idea her last name was Rodriguez. I just, I just finding this out was very encouraging to me. Like there's the, she's, Sarah Jessica Parker is playing someone. This is a, this is obviously a, a, a Texas town, right? This is, isn't this supposed to be in Texas mm-hmm. and all that? Mm-hmm. So there's, she, her, she comes from a sort of Latino background and, and uh, you, you she, I, I'm not saying you could pick that up from the, from the uh, performance, but maybe, maybe it was there it just threw me, I mean, her name was Rusty, like, okay, that's weird and silly and all that. But then to find out it's Rusty Rodriguez made me just so much more infatuated with her. I just thought that was so awesome. Um, She was great. She was great and total crush. And I mean, I, I held to that crush for much longer than I probably should have, but, uh, Mm -hmm. but, and then it's interesting because I don't, I wouldn't say that it carried over necessarily to other sarah jessica parker roles necessarily i mean i still liked her but i like that character so with my first pick i'm taking rusty
1: i think you're absolutely right for one thing that if you hear that a character's name is rusty rodriguez (laughs) sarah jessica parker is not necessarily the actor who flies to mind in fact when you first said rusty rodriguez i was like who in the (laughs) heck is rusty rodriguez and then you said footloose i was like oh rusty oh sure rusty uh i'll I'll go with that pick in terms of the character i I, I don't know how I feel about the fact that she <laughs> apparently had some um backstory that that was not explained. It was not explained um, at
0: all. There should be a whole movie about Rusty or, Rodriguez. but of course, if there was or a evidence whole, or, right. Know. if there was a whole movie about Rusty Rodriguez, you can't have Sarah Jessica Parker play that character and, you know, exactly that. exactly but she was great exactly. in, in in her time
1: all right. uh, I like that pick. um my second pick is another one of the ones that I think there's somebody out there who knew this was going to be a high pick for me. Okay. I'm going to go with uh, Lloyd Dobler <laughs> in Say Anything. Yeah. Uh, many movie crushes ultimately prove to be very foolish uh, and they do not, they do not hold up well and, <laughs> um, they do not, uh, you do not wind up feeling like they are going to stand you in good stead. Uh, but you can always count on Lloyd Dobbler <laughs> to still seem like a good idea. Because that guy, I'm going to tell you right now, is still a good idea. <laughs> even these many, many years later. Not only is he, he is funny, yes. he is kind, mm-hmm. Uh, he kicks glass out of the way. Totally. And, and look, I understand that a boy should not come to your house and hold a boombox box over his head <laughs> when you have broken up with him. I completely, I, I totally get that. I understand why for some people that pushes him over into the, uh, inappropriate character. Uh, let's perhaps say stalking behavior. However, I think, uh, I have always assumed that's the only thing like that he ever did and that he only did it because he knew that it was her father and he was right. And it was a young man's terrible error to impose himself on her with the boombox. But other than that, you have someone who stood by her with her father. You have someone who loves her very much, was willing to go with her on her exciting journey. Um, So there's a lot going for him. Even though I would sit him down and say, friend, (laughs) never again with the boombox and the demonstrative never again. That should not that should not be the iconic moment from that movie. The iconic moment from that movie should be when he's holding her hand at the end on the airplane.
0: Yes. Yes. Okay, I have many thoughts on this. I have many. First of all, it is it is an amazing pick. It's so amazing. Pick it has thrown my entire draft board up for for grabs. Let, let me just tell you it's that good a pick. Um so good. You know the, the thing the boombox thing is 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 troubling. It really it really is cuz it, it is. I, I watched it I we just watched uh, say anything uh with my daughter, my oldest daughter uh yeah, just you know, a few weeks ago. It's really been very recent. And yeah, that boombox does not hold up. She she was she was she loved him. She loved Lloyd Dobler, but she was a little taken aback. Of course, yes. also taken aback as you will be from nineteen eighties movies by how poorly she handled the breakup. I mean, she yes. she was not. It was the the whole giving him a pen thing and all that. Like that mm-hmm. that was not good. I mean, you could see how it totally messed his mind. I mean, you could definitely well, see it, that
1: she she made it fairly clear that she. Didn't really want to break up with him, but she was doing it anyway. And it is in no way to say that that excuses the behavior (laughs) on his part. But I do think that, um, you know, clear communication helps everyone. And uh, as I said, I would sit down with him and say, you cannot ever do that ever again to anyone. And I think I think that he would hear me. And he would not ever do it again.
0: I think if one of his friends had told him not to do it, he might not have. Done it. Exactly, yeah, I, I exactly. Right. He just didn't know. It was a, it was the exactly. first time for him. Um, exactly. He was so good. All right. Well, this, like I say, this throws my entire board because uh, I was very seriously debating with my second pick whether to take Diane Court from Say Anything
1: mm-hmm, or mm-hmm.
0: or Allison Bradbury from The Sure Thing, and. Oh, they're both so good. And so I was one of my favorites. I was very seriously considering, had you not done that, actually taking John Cusack, just figuring that clearly that's who I wanted to be my entire 80s life. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so since you took John Cusack, uh, and you took Say Anything, I'm not going to take Diane Court I am going to take Allison Bradbury, uh, who is the Daphne Zuniga character in The Sure Thing. Uh, so, well, I mean, what. What more could you want? I mean, she a little stuck up, a little, a little bit stuck up. Although she gets over that uh, by the end of the movie, but smart, beautiful, uh, just, just knows what she wants. Somewhat, uh, just clearly has things together, and uh, and and adaptable, very adaptable to situations that uh, that that are foreign to her. So so great, uh, great in every element. Great when she. She, like, kicks him after he tries to, like, hit on her under the stars. Yes, she does. (laughs) That was great. (laughs) Great in the car when they're trying to not sing show tunes. Uh, Mm -hmm. Great when she breaks up with her her boyfriend, who she never should have ended up with in the first place. Uh, So just wonderful throughout. Total crush. Crushed on her, uh, basically. I'd say almost all the way. So I got married, I guess. That movie came out about 84. I got married 14, 15 years later at any point leading up to literally me walking down the the aisle, if Daphne Zuniga had come over and asked me uh, to marry her, I would have. So, uh, so very, very good character. Although I don't think Daphne Zuniga is that Alison Bradbury character. Uh, She's still awesome. So that's my second pick. And I feel great about it.
1: You should feel great about it. So hilariously enough, um, my big, my big, one of my big struggles was, am I going to take John Cusack in say anything? Or am I going to take John Cusack in The Sure Thing? Right. Because The Sure Thing was my first favorite I movie that was loved like not a, that was like not a kid's movie. Yeah. And it was my, it was my introduction into romantic comedies, really. Um, and that movie is so, that movie is so much fun. And it has also moments that do not hold up, no. but um <laughs> But it is so It is so sweet and it is so... I remember reading Roger Ebert's review of it and he said it's a movie that has a kiss in it that actually seems to mean something. Yeah. Um, it, is, it is such a fun and funny and weird movie and it has like this little Tim Robbins performance <laughs> and this little Lisa Jane Persky performance um, and this Anthony Edwards as like a college... Uh, kind of monstrous college, <laughs>
0: like dude yeah, that yeah. you'll
1: that you'll never see him. I don't think do in any other setting. It was great. It's a great movie, Joe. Great pick. great
0: pick. I feel good. I feel good. All right, time for your
1: third pick. Oh, this is this is so this is really this is really hard. These are really hard. So, uh, gotta take Johnny Castle in Dirty Dancing. Sure. Um, I mean, I have said before. I think many of us, many of us, perhaps women and men both, spontaneously came of age while watching some of the dancing (laughs) in that movie. Um, And Patrick Swayze is one of the reasons why that is the case. Uh, He's a beautiful dancer. There is, um, obviously there's the dirty dancing stuff that everybody knows, and there's the finale dance that everybody knows, but there's also some wonderful dancing uh, that he does um with Cynthia Rhodes who plays Penny yeah. um which is some actual like she's a more of a an actual professional dancer and the the stuff that they're doing is really elegant and beautiful um and then also he's just so uh, it's the <laughs> he's so vulnerable he's so like he's had bad experiences his heart is exposed He's trying to be nice. He feels terrible when baby's father, Jerry Orbach, yes. uh, d- might not like him. He really wants him to like him because he wants to be accepted. And he he wants to try to make a good impression. And he's really not this like tough dude. He's this, oh, like I said, he's so vulnerable. <laughs> so I pick... I picked Johnny in Dirty Dancing.
0: It's a great pick. It's it's a great pick. You know, I think that's an underrated uh an underrated part of that of that movie is that that I've I've always, you know, maybe just because of, of how I grew up or whatever the case may be, I've always been really drawn to those movies of those of those like people who who want to be in, in sort of bigger company. They want to, they want to strive a little bit. You remember the movie Flamingo Kid, the Flamingo mm-hmm. Kid with uh, Matt, uh, who was it? Matt. Uh, Dylan. Dylan Dillon. And. You're trying to say Matt Damon. I did. I, Matt Damon. I don't, Matt I don't know that I've said the word Matt without following it with Damon for so long that uh, Matt Dillon and, uh, and there was this, 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 there was this, this, the whole, the whole point of that movie uh, other than seeing uh, Wayne Gretzky's uh, wife in it um, is, is that Matt Dillon is this, you know, grew up in this working class environment then he's been introduced into this, this beautiful country club setting. And, and he wants to be a part of it. He wants to belong to it. He wants to, wants to feel a part of it, but he doesn't, he feels out, you know, and I, I, so, I don't know, for whatever reason, I'm so drawn to that. And that's such a cool part to me of dirty dancing is that's, what he wants. He really wants to be sort of in this world to, to some degree. And, uh, and, and he can't, and he knows he can't. And, and uh, it brings so much of the tension to the, to the movie. He's good. He's good. I, I, I can't argue with that. Can't argue with that. Does th- does that movie hold up? Have if, if you seen it recently enough? Dirty Dancing? Yeah. I think more than,
1: more than most, probably more than many. Um more than the (laughs)
0: boombox. Definitely, definitely more than more more really, probably than the sure thing overall as an overall movie. Although Oh sure, yes. Um all right, with my with my third pick. So uh, so my first two were were from that that earlier stage of my of my childhood. So my first I, I think one of the next two was my first sort of I would call my first sort of adult crush like i was mm-hmm. old enough i was probably 20 when i saw this but i was old enough that i started thinking of things in a little bit more adult way so this might this might really might be a weird one but my my third crush is uh jane craig from broadcast news the holly hunter character oh sure of course news. yeah
1: oh no wonder yeah,
0: of course of course holly hunter is amazing in it and she's amazing and awesome in every way Uh, and she's, you know, at that point she was playing a character who was quite a few years older than I was and all of that, but everything about her was awesome. Like everything about, she was like this strong woman, but, but she would literally unplug the phone when she was in the hotel and just give herself a couple of minutes to cry and, and all of these other things. And she was this great producer and, and, uh, and yet, you know, she really couldn't, you know, know her own heart and, uh, everything about her, just to me, I found it fascinating and wonderful and and enchanting and uh, love her. Just absolutely loved her and loved that movie. So uh, that is my third pick: is uh, is uh, the Holly Hunter character in Broadcast News.
1: That's amazing. You could pick honestly. You could pick anybody. You could pick anybody that Holly Hunter has ever played. That is true. And I I would be on your side. You could say <laughs> it's the you could say it's the cop in Raising Arizona, yeah. and I would be like. Absolutely, no. why not? No. And why not? Um, all right, so the next one on my list okay. is uh is one that is um well let's say it's an unusual pick, oh boy, not a movie that a ton of people uh necessarily think about, okay. but it was a very formative crush to me, and one of the reasons I love to talk about this crush is that it requires. A stirring defense. Oh boy. Um, I like. It. So it is uh it is uh Remy, who is the character played by Dennis Quaid in the movie The Big Easy. Wow. Now, there was a there was a period of time, as I talked before about peak Harrison Ford. There was a time I would consider peak Dennis Quaid, in which uh, he was kind of this—he was kind of doing these young slick uh, dudes in these different movies, Inner Space and stuff like that. Sure. Um, and this one, in this one, he plays a New Orleans police detective. Now, the reason why this requires a defense is that his New Orleans police detective accent is one of the worst accents you will ever hear. <laughs> on film it's up there with uh it's up there with dick van dyke in in mary poppins yes it's it's really really bad and yet what is amazing is that it is still a really really sexy and charismatic (laughs) performance uh opposite ellen barkin um who plays a, a kind of a buttoned up uh investigator who's there to um i don't know help figure out a police corruption scandal right uh and they of course fall in love and get involved and all that stuff and he there's a moment when she comes into the office and uh he hasn't even met her yet and he's looking at her through a door and he's having a guy explain to him who she is and he looks at her and he looks at her through the door and he says nice neck and for some reason (laughs) To me, it's such a weird, offbeat thing for a guy to say, and yet it's very sexy. So if you watch The Big Easy, just understand okay. it's such a bad accent, but he's a really crushable character anyway.
0: Okay, I, I'm, I don't know how far I can go with you on this one. So, well, first of all, what would you consider the worst accents that that you have seen in movies, and 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 they have to be movies of some note. Mm-hmm. Like like, are we talking like Tom uh, Tom Cruise and Far and Away, like that accent? That's that's the one that I was
1: about to <laughs> ma- to mention. Actually, Tom Cruise and Far and Away is not good. Uh, <sighs> there are some uh, there are some Boston ones that have been pretty bad. Pretty bad. What about uh, what about
0: Kevin Costner in Robin Hood, where they wouldn't even give they wouldn't even let him do the accent.
1: Yeah, it's. Uh, I think that he has. He's one of those people who, fortunately, has always had enough power to prevent himself from being <laughs> embarrassed. Um,
0: Although he's done a couple of bad Boston accents, I'm pretty sure.
1: Sure. I think. I think the thing. One of the things is interesting is I think most Boston accents are bad. Yeah. I think unless you are somebody like, like Matt Damon or Ben Affleck, who actually he's has that Boston. somewhat yeah, in your background. Right. I think trying to to duplicate that, people wind up in Brooklyn. People wind up. In Brooklyn, and they can't quite figure out what the distinction is between the Boston and the Brooklyn. I think most people wind up kind of um, muddling splitting it, splitting
0: the difference. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh huh. Uh-huh. All
0: right. So, so you're saying, I mean, this is this is this is much bigger than just picking Dennis Quaid in the Big Easy. Mm-hmm. You are saying that that you can have a world class terrible accent and still be crushable.
1: Yes, okay. I am saying All that right. taking a stand, planting my flag as it were. <laughs> I like it.
0: I like it. All right. With my fourth uh, pick, I've, I've, I've got, well, there's three that I want for my final two, but I I'm debating whether or not with my fourth pick to go with the adult, uh, the adult pick or the, or the young pick. So I think I'm going to go with the young pick with my, with my fourth. And I'm going to take Jennifer Mack, uh, from war games. That is the Ali Sheedy character from war games. Um, I, uh, that was, that was for me, that was very, that was very young. Uh, that was, I was about, uh, her age. I think I still am about her age. I think that's the way that works. Um, and, and, uh, just thought that character is very, very thin. That is a, it is, there is, there is not a whole lot of depth at all in that character, uh, that they, and it's not Ali Sheedy's fault. They just didn't give her a lot to do. She's not, it's just not her movie. Uh, and yet in the small amounts of time that she's, she's able to, to be in the movie, you can, you can get a sense of how, uh, how, you know, sort of brave she is, how brazen she is, how she is willing to, uh, to be out there and step out there. Uh, and, uh, and she, you know, I think she's a much stronger character than, uh, than Matthew uh, Broderick is as the main uh, character. I think she, it should have been, she should have been the star of war games. Uh, it, it would have been a different movie, but it, but it would have been, I think a, a little bit better movie, but even within the very limited amount that she was given, she's still awesome. She's still Ali Sheedy. So she is my pick for my fourth pick.
1: Joe, I don't know what's going on here. Matthew Broderick in War Games was on my my original long list. Wow, uh, he's he's not on my short list, but okay. he was on my long list. He's, you know, he's like a very he's like an early proto nerd, right? Yeah, he is, he's a he is he's a smart he's a smart kid. He's a curious kid. He makes a lot of trouble. Um, at that time, it's you know it's pre him going into the kind of Ferris Bueller super smug right. kind of thing <laughs> that he did for a while. Um, and I just think I I I love that. That's such a that's such a terrific um, movie from the '80s that doesn't always get the the love that it deserves. So yes. I agree with that. There we go. Perfect.
0: All right, it's time for our final pick.
1: <sighs> this is so hard. This is so hard, Joe. I know it. I mean, I feel like I'm on this podcast, and I feel like I have to pick Crash Davis from Baltimore.
0: Yeah, i I've, I've been waiting for you to pick him.
1: I think I have to, yeah. right? I yeah. I think I have to. I also really, my other choice was I really wanted to take the character that Sam Shepard plays in Baby Boom, who's a, um, a veterinarian that the Diane, Diane Keaton character meets when she goes off to live in the country and make baby food applesauce. Right. Uh, Sam Shepard is in that movie, and he is so effortlessly sexy in that movie. It's one of those movies, of course, if you know anything about Sam Shepard. You know, he's he's very overqualified for the role that he's playing in that movie. He's a wonderful actor, fantastic playwright. I just recently saw the revival of True West that's on Broadway right now. Um, but uh, I cannot not pick Crash Davis. Now, I think that you have to put aside the speech that for a long time was the uh, the big Crash Davis yeah. uh, speech, which was the I believe in all these things right. speech. That speech is show-offy and kind of, you know, it's a lot. It's a, it's, it's a, it's kind of, you know. But what I do love about that movie and what I do love about him is the sort of aggravated, this is, like I said, this is where my affection for aging athletes may come from, aging athlete characters. It's this aggravated, like, he he still wants to play baseball. He still loves to play baseball, but he cannot believe how often he is surrounded by idiots. And I find it, <laughs> I find it so funny. And obviously I like Susan Sarandon in that movie, but my, my favorite relationship is between him and, and Nuke, the, yes. the Tim Robbins character. Um, the And the conversations that take place on the baseball field in that movie are among my favorite baseball, baseball field conversations in any form of media. Right. The they keep having these like mound meetings where they talk about wedding presents and they talk about, uh, and I and I love the part where he he gets uh, nuke to throw and hit the ball, yes. <laughs> um, to just freak out the batter, hit the ball. I just I, it makes me laugh so much, um, and I feel like even putting aside that not necessarily as good as it's cracked up to be speech, that is still a oh that's still lovable character.
0: I I I totally think you're right, and I'll, I'll let me. Have, I have a couple of thoughts on what you said. One, I could not agree with you more about the speech. Look, the speech in and of itself is fine. The I believe Kennedy acted alone, all that stuff. It's fine.
1: Well,
0: Oswald acted. Right, uh, Oswald acted alone. Right, sorry. <laughs> Kennedy certainly would have acted alone. I would think. Um, it's fine. It's all fine. Um, it's totally out of character for him to do that. Like that's right. like that's that's exactly what he doesn't do, right? he doesn't right. just go off mm-hmm. and start showing off about all of his many thoughts on the world or whatever I mean that's that's mm-hmm. uh, my favorite sort of like moment's not my favorite scene in the movie, but my favorite sort of moment about this about that that, that sort of reflects who he is is when he says, "Oh, I can get us a rain out, and they turn on yes. they turn on the like like that's the guy who's like. I've been in every ballpark I've been everywhere. I'm, you know, I'm totally, I still love playing, but I'm totally bored by all of it. You know, and I can just, I just want to do things and experience things uh, that it's not like everything else in in, in the world. And, and I, I just thought very, very uh, just a great, he's just a great character. I, I actually have thought, look, I think, and I think Bull Durham is a terrific movie Um but I've actually thought there is a great movie just on Crash Davis, like on, oh yeah, yeah, right, absolutely. I just think there's a, for, a just fantastic movie.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. And I think you know the thing about the speech, like you said, it's out of character for him, and the things that are the best writing in that movie to me are not even in that speech. They're in much smaller moments. Like the line when the line, when Susan Sarandon is acting really strange and he tells her a conversation with you is like a Martian talking to a fungo. (laughs) And it, it, it's such a weird, like why does the fungo come into it? Like it's, it's a Martian talking to a fungo is such a funny, strange line. And that's what makes it great. And it's much more subtle than that, than that speech is. Now
0: here's, here's a question for you. And I don't know when the the last time you saw this movie, but it's something that, that has struck me uh, many, many times that I've seen it hundreds of times. And as I'm sure you have, there's this weird moment when they're on the bus where he's talking with, with, with crash. And I guess they're on the winning streak or whatever. And suddenly he like looks up and like in a very weird voice kind of says, We're almost home. Right. Do you remember this scene that that I'm talking about? I do. Yeah. I do. What what the heck was that? Like, where did that come from? Like what was that something that they were going for? Or did they just shoot that once and then they figured it wasn't worth going back to fix it? Or it was just (laughs) very odd. Didn't you think? I think it's just, I think there is an
1: effort in that movie to keep getting at the idea that being on the road is kind of um, exhausting And that, that being on the bus is, is, you know, tires guys out and they are constantly thinking about making it home. That's the only thing I can think of. It's, it it is an, it is a little bit of an odd addition. It's so weird.
0: And it's, and the way he delivers the line is very odd. And I don't know, it's just something that struck me about him. I think it's a, it's a fantastic, fantastic pick. Uh you you've got a great 80s crushable team. You really do. You have a very, Thank very you. strong team. Thank you. All right. With my fifth pick, I've got I've got several choices. Uh, so I'm gonna tell you who I almost picked. Uh, I almost picked Sally Albright, the Meg Ryan character for when Harry Met Sally. Sure. But it, sure. it feels too obvious to me. It just mm-hmm. feels like, right? That's mm-hmm. like everybody's supposed to pick her. She is awesome and incredibly crushable. There's no mm-hmm. no question about that. Uh I very, very seriously considered uh, choosing Susan, the Elizabeth Perkins character in Big. Uh, Oh, sure. Love, love her. Love her. Uh Just Uh couldn't, like, they, uh, obviously all of these people are incredibly well cast, but if you wanted sort of the, I'm 13 years old and I'm about to be 30, and who would be the 30-year-old woman that I would fall in love with? It would be Elizabeth Uh Perkins. I think Uh that was really Uh good. Uh, I very seriously consider choosing Allie Mills, the Elizabeth Shue character in Karate Kid, um, but since I want to end on my adult one, the person who took me out of the '80s and brought me into the '90s uh, is the is Susie Diamond, the Michelle Pfeiffer character in Fabulous Baker Boys. So, oh sure, that is there's there. It's it's so it's so good, and so, she was so good and so awesome and so gorgeous and so everything in that movie. It's it's like it doesn't even need to be explained. She's Michelle Pfeiffer. I mean, she's great in absolutely everything, but uh, particularly great as as Susie Diamond, uh, who I defy anyone to not fall in love with Susie Diamond. Uh, so that's my fifth pick.
1: Yeah, I mean that's sort of the point of that movie, right? Is how how crushable she is.
0: I don't think the the movie has nothing else really. I mean, it's yeah. it. it has, <laughs> It has good acting. I mean the acting is great mm-hmm. in it and and the music's fine and and the story is I don't know exactly what the story is. Right? I guess the story is about these two brothers who who can't get along anymore after right. many years on the road and all that. And it's and here's the other thing. I did watch that not that long ago also. It's it's filmed very dark. Like I I mean, mm-hmm. you know, maybe that's just to sort of give you the impression that you know, not the impression, but like this is where they played in these dark, dingy halls and all that sort of thing. But it's really dark. It's like disconcertingly dark uh in, in most scenes. And um uh, I don't I don't know what they were going for with that specifically, but it's it is a very it's still a very enjoyable movie. I don't know how well it holds up uh some of the things, but she holds up. Michelle Pfeiffer is holds up very, very well as as she does. But it could have been Michelle Pfeiffer married to the mob, and it could have been Michelle Pfeiffer and Dangerous Liaisons, and it could have been Michelle Pfeiffer and anything else. So she's she's amazing. But but I'm gonna.
1: She say, is wonderful. She is she is wonderful in just about everything. I agree with that. And
0: still, still, like you know, still. Just, you still see her in, in hairspray or whatever, and she's still amazing so she is still she's still great in everything uh, yes so this is great but we feel good about our teams right michael could not yeah. michael michael's teams could not defeat either of our teams i gotta feel
1: no definitely not and i do you know i feel like the pushback i'm gonna get is on the is on the boom box <laughs> i just want to tell people <laughs> i hear you i understand please please understand i only pick him with the idea that i could he could he could accept a stern lecture. He's that kind of guy.
0: There were two people that I thought there was a chance you would choose. And so I'm, I'm going to just mm-hmm. throw them to you and see if you, if they were in any way on your longer list or whatever. One is sort of an obvious one. It's uh Wesley from the princess bride. Yeah. Yes. yes. He was,
1: he was the one, he was the last cut. Oh. He was the last cut. Yeah. Uh, last cut. How?
0: I mean, he's fantastic, right? Just great. Yes. Yes.
1: Unnervingly, unnervingly beautiful. Yeah. <laughs>
0: And then here's one, and I don't know. I, you just have to tell me. Maybe this. I don't know if this caught you at a different time. There were no. There are literally no uh, uh, women or girls in this movie, so it's it wasn't like one that there was even. Thing, but but came to mind the Chris Chambers, the River Phoenix character in Stand By Me.
1: Yeah, I thought about that. I thought about whether like that character was too young for me to say oh, <laughs> it a yeah. crushable character it's a little creepy it's a little creepy but i will say certainly later river phoenix characters and and similar certainly when i was that age like i when i was 11 or 12 mm-hmm. that was certainly the kind of boy that i had <laughs> massive crushes on when i was 11 or 12 most definitely the other very late cut was um Knox Overstreet from Dead Poets oh, Society. Oh, yeah, yeah. Who was the Josh, the Josh Charles character uh, who I just found incredibly winning and his desire to kind of impress this girl. And I just, I think he was, that's an adorable performance.
0: Interestingly enough, on my longer list that didn't get that far, probably because I didn't even know her, the girl he was crushing on was on my list. Oh, And I nice. don't even, I don't remember her name. I don't remember, I just remember she was just, she was, she, you could see, you, they, they, I mean, they made it work. You could see why he was completely. She uh, was a dream girl. He was a dream girl. She was totally a yeah. dream girl. So absolutely fantastic. All right. So it's time for one last meaningless thing to end this meaningless thing. It's
1: one last meaningless thing to end
0: this meaningless thing. We talk about sports and we draft things we know. Like our beaches are terrible places to go. No hot fruit for Michael, more Diet Coke for Joe. The podcast whoa. It's one last wall. Do you have one? Were you able to grab one?
1: Oh, I do. It's not it's not even that meaningless, but I'm just gonna tell you, I cannot not say. Uh, I bought a house this week. Yes, um, and so I feel like uh, once you've bought a house, it gives you a whole other universe of boring things to talk about <laughs> with people. <laughs> Yesterday, if you know my my podcast, you know my buddy Glenn Weldon, who's one of the the panelists on my podcast, sure. and I was regaling him with a discussion of my house's outdoor drainage system sure. and indoor drainage system. It is, a, it is another entire level of boring <laughs> minutia that you can discuss with people, like how excited you are about the fact that the house has the, the original wood floors and the original doors. Um, it, it makes you boring, but in a new way.
0: So awesome. That is so true. I, I, buying a house totally... It it it's it's like it's like the house isn't just new; it's like you're new. It's like it makes you into an entirely new person whose interests have suddenly shifted from what all of your interests were before you ever started to whatever you need them to be in order to get this house done. That's
1: well, exactly, and and everything I ever cared about before is now less important yes. than making sure that no water <laughs> gets into the basement. Like that's that's
0: the whole that's the whole thing. That's exactly right. We actually uh, are. Well, we our starter first house we bought, and then we had a house built, which I would highly recommend to everybody if you want to lose your mind to have a house built. <laughs> and nothing mattered to me more nothing on earth meant that not sports, not writing, not reading then how I was going to finish the, uh, the, the fireplace. Like, like the, what, oh, yeah. what were we going to do with the wall? The one wall was going to be stone and the other side was going to be this. And how were you? And I, I, I thought about that nonsense nonstop for weeks on end trying to get that kind yes. of thing done. And so, it, yes, yeah, I,
1: I, just, yes. I spend a long time ruminating on built-in bookshelves. So Yes.
0: <laughs> It's amazing. It's amazing. This is wonderful and you could not have picked a better time to buy a house than right before your first book comes out. That's exactly the perfect mm-hmm. time to do it.
1: Exactly. I figure uh you might as well do all of your major life events in <laughs> a period of like 3 or 4 months. I think that's when you kind of want to cram everything in so that you know, for the for another couple of years maybe, maybe nothing
0: important. Nothing important. That's exactly right. So for those of you that have gone or are going, uh, to whatever site you're going to go to, to buy Evie Drake starts over right now, when you bring it to Linda to sign, uh, you can discuss like drainage, right? You can basically. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Ask me about my basement. (laughs) So,
0: So Linda, how is your, are you finishing your basement? Is it a finished basement? Where are we on this basement thing?
1: It is a finished basement. It's a finished basement. Um, it's where the laundry is, but it also has like a nice open area that you can put like a sectional sofa. Nice. So walk out like, walkout. You have any windows? No, no, it's not a walkout. Um, it does have it, only has like the one small window up at the top. Uh, yeah, um yeah. it's it's that kind of true basement. But, uh, aside from that, you know, it's in, it's in very, very good shape. And I'm, I'm very excited to see how it develops. This
0: is going to be wonderful. It's going to be wonderful. You're going to get a house. You're going to move into your house. Your book is going to be a huge success. It's going to be fantastic. Just everything is going to go great. Oh, I hope so. I, oh, I hope so. All right. I hope so. My one last meaningless thing is meaningless. After coming from, from a true life experience to my meaningless one, uh, my wife, uh, and I, I guess, but mostly my wife bought a Roomba, one of those little, uh, oh, yeah. right, one of those little, uh, vacuum cleaner thingies. Uh, she bought one and we'd, we'd been completely skeptical. I'm usually a gadget. I am a gadget person. So like, I'm really surprised we weren't on the front end of that, but I just, neither one of us saw any real value in it. We bought one. It's the greatest. Okay. We love it. We absolutely love the thing. But here's, here's my meaningless uh, thing about the Roomba. I don't know exactly how I did this, but when I set up the Roomba, I set it up so that it would send me uh, alerts on my phone (laughs) whenever it needs something. So I will be somewhere. I was in New York uh, in the middle of a couple of meetings, um, which is ridiculous enough. And I, my phone would buzz and I would look and it would be Roomba's left wheel is stuck or <laughs> Roomba Ru, is near a cliff. And I would be looking at it and I'd be like, okay. And then it would buzz again, like Roomba is running low on energy. And I, like, okay. And, and I have decided that I love it and I'm not going to change mm-hmm. it because my first thought was, uh, okay, just stop getting the alerts, right? Just just take the alerts off. No, I'm not going to take the alerts off. I yeah. care what my Roomba is doing 24 hours a day. Anytime Roomba is in trouble or, or has some sort of uh, needs, I want to know. It doesn't matter where I am in the world. I want to know what my Roomba needs. So I just wanted to say, I don't think that's meaningless at all. Uh, we have a new member of the family. Essentially, I am now getting more texts from my Roomba than I am getting from either of my daughters, and I feel uh, okay about it.
1: That's that is amazing. I have a I have a camera, I have a spy camera that watches my dog when he's <laughs> when he's at home, and it sends me alerts if he starts barking. Wow. Um, now, the good thing about that is I can make sure that he's not bothering anybody. I can make sure that he's not agitated. But the really good part is on one occasion, I left home. He decided to have a little tiny bit of separation anxiety. And my apartment building called me and said that, you know, one of the neighbors was complaining that the dog was barking. Mm-hmm. And I actually had the ability to look at my phone And know that the dog had started barking three minutes ago and therefore that the neighbors were being unreasonable. And I did not feel bad about it. I was like, (laughs) because the dog had had a longer barking episode on an earlier day. But this time I felt they had jumped the gun. And I knew that because I had the spy camera and I could know I knew exactly when he started barking. And I thought you neighbors. Wow.
0: Kind of jerky neighbors, I got to say.
1: You think- well, I think they were concerned about him because of the earlier time when he had gotten sick and started barking and howling um, while I was away, and I and I understood that one, but I think they jumped the gun on, on the second. So time. you
0: think they were just waiting, sort of just waiting for okay, as yes. soon the second. So that's what I. Yeah, the, that's what I
1: think it was. I think they were like, "Oh, this is starting up again." Whereas in fact, it's just a little, you know, docs have a little separation anxiety. They need a couple of minutes to settle down. Sure. But the other great thing is I can talk back to him through the spy camera. Really? So if I take it out and he's barking, I can turn on the speaker and through my phone, I can comfort him and and soothe him when I'm not at home. Have you you found that works? Does it work? Yes. Yes. I can say, it's it's okay. I just tell him, it's okay, buddy. I feel like this is a thing that I should do for people for a fee, is I just say, (laughs) if you're upset, just tell me, and I'll press a button on my phone, and I'll just tell you, it's okay, buddy. It's all right. Just settle down. Settle down. It's okay. It's all right. Nothing's happening. Just just lie down. It's fine, because that's what I do for the dog. I
0: love this. I need to do this for my Roomba. So, um, I, know. I, I think, I, I actually think that's, uh, it's actually ideal. I, I really, I really believe that, that all of us could just use, well, there should be like a number. I remember the Gary Goldman used to have like this bit about how, uh, how horrible and harsh like alarm clocks are and that alarm yeah. clocks really should just be this sweet voice saying, Hey buddy, time to get yeah. up, you know? <laughs> I I really believe there should be a place where all of us could like press a button and somebody will call us and just go, Hey, listen, I know you're going through a little something here. It'll be all right. Just don't worry about it. And that's it. And that's all that person does 20, you know, 18 hours a day or whatever. I think that would be, yeah, absolutely. And you would,
1: you would pay them, you know, a small service, fee. Right. And they would be, ava- they would be available to you to tell you to calm
0: down. We need that's, to start this that's company. what I do for the dog. I love, yeah. this. I love this company idea. Well, Linda, I can't uh, thank you enough. This was fantastic. Remember the book is, I'm not telling you to remember, you know the book. Uh, the book is Evie Drake Starts Over uh, by Linda Holmes, available everywhere uh, for pre-order right now and will be available June 25th. Uh, and you're going to do some events, right? And when, when the book comes out, you're the, I am, I I am. You'll be on parade.
1: Yes, I will. They're not, uh, we're still finalizing, but, uh, yeah, you should, there should be some opportunities to come out and talk about the book if you so
0: desire. People will desire. I think it's going to be fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Joe.